Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. Today, we are talking to members of the HSI Task Force at Cabrillo College, including Ann Endres, Title V Director, Blanca Baltasar Sabah, Dean of Academic Counseling Career Educational Support Services, Alicia Bencomo Garcia, Ethnic Studies Faculty, and Serena Eichelberger, HSI Title III STEM Project Director. And also coming in with us, our president of Cabrillo College. Thanks for joining us, Matt Wetstein. We're happy to have you all here today on Que Pasa HSIs. So let's talk about y'all. Before we get into HSI stuff, I'd like us to know about you. So tell us a little bit about you and about your educational journey and how you became who you are today. And we'll start with Blanca. Thank you for having us, Gina. So excited to be here. Uh, I was the first in my family to graduate from high school. And although I had friends going to college, it seemed out of reach for me until a friend of mine told me about Cabrillo College. We had just graduated from high school and he asked me where I was going to college. And I told him I wasn't going and he seemed surprised given that we had taken many of our same uh, college prep classes. So I went home and told my parents about Cabrillo and they were very supported. So I ended up enrolling at Cabrillo, earning my AA and transferring to Sac State as a math major. Unfortunately, my father became very ill that year and I had to commute back and forth to take him to his medical appointments at USF. As a result, my grades suffered and um, he died a year uh, that later that year. So being the oldest of four children, and my mom being a widow at the age of 40, I changed my major to social science with a minor in math so that I could return to Watsonville. I ended up graduating from Sac State with a major in social science and minor in mathematics. I attended Bethany College where I earned my teaching credentials in both subjects and later earned my master's in counseling, my PPS credential, admin credential, and doctorate degree in educational leadership from San Jose State University. So I began my career teaching high school students at Aptos High, and while the area is highly affluent, most of my students were bused in from a migrant labor camp in Watsonville. I was one of a handful of bilingual teachers uh, at the school, um, and later I transitioned into counseling as I wanted to have a broader reach. I left Aptos after six years to begin working in Salinas as a high school counselor and later moved uh, Transition to many positions in administration, such as assistant principal, middle school principal, director of migrant ed, English learners, and was associate superintendent of instructional services for six years. Until I returned home last year to serve as the Dean of Academic Counseling Career Educational Support Services at Cabrillo. So it's been a full circle for me. And now I'll pass the mic over to Alicia. Thank you, Blanca, and thank you so much for having us on the podcast. Really exciting. After having listened to so many of the podcasts on the show and now being here, it's kind of, it, it's not kind of, it's really cool. 
<laughs> so ever since I could uh, remember, I knew that I would be going to college. So when I get asked this question, I feel like I don't have an event or a specific conversation that I can point to, uh, to be like, that's what made me want to go to college, right? It was kind of always just this, this idea, like I knew I would be going to college as a first person in my family to graduate from high school and the oldest. And I think being the oldest child, right, has its own has its own things, especially from a, like in a Latinx family. So uh, my parents raised me and my siblings with the idea that we would at the very least give college a try, right? And always telling us like, that's the, the inheritance we're leaving you. We're not leaving you money or we don't have like homes and all these things, but we're leaving you your education. And so I did, I graduated from high school and I went on to UC Davis as a genetics major and, um, my idea of becoming an optometrist, well, I wanted to become an optometrist, right, an eye doctor. And so coming from a small rural agricultural town, I, I knew that I wanted to give back to my family and my community. Um, and so, but in my mind, the ways that I could give back would be being like a teacher, being a doctor, like a medical doctor, or like a lawyer, right? And so those are kind of like the careers that I was um, like aware of in terms of helping giving back. And my dad works in the fields. He doesn't have health insurance and he's always had eye problems. And so I was like, I'm going to be an eye doctor so I can help my dad. And, you know, he'll have free access to eye care and all these things and everyone else in the family. And so, but I always hated blood and like needles and stuff like that. So I don't know how little me thought I would survive med school, but I did. And, um, but anyway, so I'm at UC Davis studying science and genetics and, um, I was very lucky that I got an internship my second year at an optometrist office in downtown Davis, and I hated it so much. And it kind of was just like the realization for me that this wasn't like the career that would be right for me. And so I decided to start exploring other options. I went through what I thought was like a midlife crisis at the age of like 19, and I was just going through it. And um I explored many different majors and I ended up deciding on sociology and Chicana Chicano studies for my, at UC Davis for my undergrad. And by that point, like the idea of me becoming a doctor was such a thing within me and my family that I was like, I still want to be a doctor, right? I still want a doctor degree, but not a medical one. And so I um, decided to pursue grad school after my undergrad. And um, after graduating from Davis, I went on to San Jose State to um, get my, or to earn my master's in Mexican American studies, now known as Chicana Chicano Studies. And then from there, I went back to UC Davis for my PhD in education. And I'll wrap it up there and I'll pass it on to Serena. So thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. Uh, so for me, my journey in higher education was, was a survival decision. It was really driven by a challenging childhood with six adverse childhood experiences, otherwise known as ACEs. But amidst those difficult circumstances, school did become uh, a lifeline for me and a means to change uh, my environment. So I ended up attending the University of California, Santa Cruz, uh, but faced financial struggles, uh, given that my parents considered a four-year university as a waste of money. Uh, nonetheless, I did uh, persevere by borrowing money from my grandma and working odd jobs and made it through, you know, through college. Uh, so my grades did suffer, but I did rely on my social capital to find that sense of belonging and endure through those tough times. 
And despite it taking longer than expected, I eventually earned a degree in biology and environmental studies. Uh, so for me, education has always been my calling. Um, I've been inspired um, by the educators in my family from my Peruvian grandfather, you know, teaching in the little pueblitos in the Andes. And then on my dad's side of the family, there was high school principals, high school teachers, and my grandma being a kindergarten teacher in East, uh, East San Jose. So my mission is to create a safe space for marginalized youth through education. And so after teaching life sciences in East Palo Alto, I pursued a master's and credential program focused on social justice and unfortunately endured quite a few microaggressions while advocating for educational equity. Um, I do firmly believe that every student can achieve grade level mastery through compassionate teaching, relationship building, and culturally competent curricula. Um, but the, you know, I had a lot of experience in the app, like application of the theory, and that was kind of where, um, you know, my experience was in graduate school. So from there, I uh, established an ELD in middle school science program in East San Jose before transitioning into administration for an adult school in Seaside and then later on Cabrillo. So each of my students just continues to inspire me every day and I'm so grateful for their support, the support of their families, their guardians, my colleagues, my sisters and my friends. Um, I'd like to give a huge shout out to Marco. Marco, boop, boop. he's one of my first students and now one of my greatest mentors. Um, my really good friend, Helene, was an equity warrior amiga from the jump way back in the day when we were babies starting our you know, equity work and social justice work. Um, Tara's a good professional and, and personal North Star, a moral compass and Alan and Angie for really believing in my leadership. Uh, my cousin, Mishy, who is over in Foothill, keeping me grounded in, in our family values. And then my sister, Tanley, my ride or die. My other sister, Nena, just really allowing space for whatever I need um, at the moment. Of course, my abuelita Maria and my grandma King, they just provided a foundation from which I could thrive. And then, you know, I really couldn't do this work without the support of my immediate family, my partner, Joe, my children, Joy and Sochi, who, who really support me every day. So I want to give them all a big shout out, big ups, big ups. Um, thank you for providing unwavering support um, every day and especially when I feel like giving up. And so while my journey to higher ed began as a survival decision, my decision to stay in higher ed was really driven by the desire to heal, learn, grow and serve alongside my community. And so with that, I'll pass it to my fellow slug, Anne. Thank you, Serena. Uh, so my name is Anne Endress. Um, Gina, just thank you so much for this invitation uh, to, to be here. I know I was so excited when you uh, asked Cabrillo to come and join your podcast and talk about our HSI task force. We've been so excited. Um, and I'm really enjoying like listening to the introductions of my of my colleagues, we're a pretty incredible team um, and you know, really feel um, that we support each other a lot. So again, um, my name is Anne. I grew up in uh, on a small family farm in um, Sacramento Valley, California. And for me, even though I grew up really rural on a farm, um, again, parents back to land farmers, they came from um, a long line of people who are college educated. So for me, it was never, I was not first generation. Like my parents went to college, my grandparents went to college, my great, great grandparents went to college, even the women. 
Uh, I think my great great aunt was like one of the first women to graduate from UC Berkeley in chemistry. So it was always this like, of course I will go to college, right? Um, but I bucked the trend by not doing STEM. Like all the women in my family were all STEM or on my dad's side of the family, I should say the women on that side. Um, so I ended up going to UC Santa Cruz, fellow slug along with Serena. Um, I double majored in political science and language studies, spent a year abroad at a university in Spain, and then also took half a year off to, uh, to live in Nicaragua, live and work. Um, after college, I moved to Oakland and worked in, in nonprofit management um, for an arts education youth development organization. And I did that for three years. And that was a really foundational um, just training and learning for me to be in Oakland and working um, with the art artist community and working within uh, the public schools there. So uh, really amazing way to kickstart my career after college. After a few years, I decided I needed to go back to school, get an advanced degree, get a master's. So I ended up applying for a Fulbright fellowship to comparatively study migration between Morocco and Spain and Mexico and the US, just because I was like, what a cool project would that be? And I ended up getting it, which was awesome. Um, so after a year of Spain, uh, being in Spain as a Fulbright fellow, I followed it up with a master's at UC Santa Cruz, I'm sorry, UC San Diego. Um, and I, it was all studying transit migration and doing field work down on the Mexico-Guatemala border. Um, and I thought that I would go into like a career looking on immigration and immigration advocacy and all that kind of stuff. And um, instead, I ended up following my heart back to the Central Coast because my then boyfriend, who became my husband, lived was living here in Santa Cruz area. So I came back here, ended up landing a job at UC Santa Cruz as a researcher in the education department, working on this project, looking at assessment and placement policies in the California community college system. Um, and particularly the impact impact on Latinx students. And um, so I started as a researcher sort of examining the system and how it was impacting students and then learned about a program at Cabrillo that was like totally amazing. And then, then I ended up reaching out to that program. It was called ACE Academy for College Excellence and just said, hey, you guys are like totally amazing and stand out as being this really incredible program that is really different from everything else that I'm reading about. And they said, great, do you want to come teach for us? We're looking for a social justice research instructor. And so that's how I started teaching at Cabrillo in 2009. Um, and then just like the, the more fell in love with Cabrillo and just have gotten deeper and deeper in. I uh, started managing grants in around 2016 and then became the Title V director in 2020. And with that, I'm going to pass it over to Matt. Well, thanks, Anne. Thanks, Gina, for um, the opportunity to be on the podcast and for everything you do. Um, you're, you're terrific. Uh, my, I'm a fellow political scientist, so following Anne is great. Um, I ended up um, moving from East St. Louis, Illinois, where I grew up, to to attend a liberal arts college in Joliet. That was my higher ed entry, uh, and so I studied at University of St. Francis. I was a political science major. Uh, but I'd also done some work in um, journalism classes and actually helped edit the newspaper there for a small college newspaper. So my first work coming out of college was actually as a, a journalist for a small newspaper in Wilmington, Illinois, a little farming community. Uh, and I learned, I did that for a couple of years and learned I wasn't going to make a lot of money in journalism. Uh, and I was kind of thinking, you know, I really liked poli sci when I was going through college and I had a great 
um, mentor and teacher, Tom Boki, who was my advisor, did these great classes on Soviet foreign policy, US foreign policy, and all. I just remembered really loving it and thought, you know, I'd love to do that. So I ended up going to grad school in um, at Northern Illinois. I uh, got my master's and, and my PhD in political science there, and then ended up in California because my wife had gone to Berkeley uh, as an undergrad, and she wanted to come out here and teach. So she got a job at University of Pacific. I followed her out to Stockton, uh, where it's located, and I ended up getting a job as a teacher, uh, political science teacher there, and loved it uh, at the local community college, San Joaquin Delta College in Stockton. Uh, and from there, I just got interested in research and planning. I became a dean of planning. I got into administration at that college, kind of moved up the ranks and uh, ultimately became vice president. Uh, and then when Cabrillo's president uh, job opened up about six years ago, I jumped at it because uh, I knew a few people working over here and doing some of the work like the ACE work and other stuff and just uh, feel really lucky to be here as president Cabrillo. Thank you all. I love hearing your stories. I agree. And like listening, I know you said, you know, like listen to your colleagues or I just like listening, uh, getting to know y'all more, right? Because I know each of y'all have worked with y'all already uh, a little bit in the past um, and we'll continue to work with y'all, but it's an honor to have y'all here. So thank you. Thank you for being here. I always look for a thread and there's definitely this like public school California commitment in y'all's thread, right? Like I love that um, as a public school public educated um person from california as well both the cal states and the ucs um so i love that i love that the commitment is so strong right and that we stay very committed um in, in california right to, to to educating the folks of california so that's clear that's clear from y'all's um from y'all's bio so just wanted to throw that out there that's my researcher brain always looking for uh themes <laughs> themes in the data almost like oh there's a, a good thread going on here so now that we heard about y'all and how you got to be the amazing people you are because you all are amazing I like to hear about how did you learn about HSI right because none of y'all said I went to a Hispanic serving institution and therefore that's why I do the work I do right um and that's the reality is that that at this time most of us don't necessarily acknowledge right that if, if we went to HSIs or even if we knew right at the time um so tell us about your 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 how you came to consciousness how did you come to know HSIs because y'all are, are absolutely in the thick of doing HSI work so how'd you come to know HSIs tell us about your 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 journey and Blanca you want to start us yes be glad to and I really think about just the servingness journey um, as opposed to like the, the title like HSI, right? And so I think for me, growing up with a large extended family and always hosting new immigrants from my hometown in Mexico was probably the beginning of servingness in my life. It was through the actions of my abuelitos and my parents that I was shown the gift of compassion and giving constantly having people in and out of our homes and always giving them that transition that they needed um, to adapt to the new the new place. So, um, but I think it wasn't until middle school that I began to see disparities in how people were treated. My mom, Sylvia, was one of hundreds of women that participated in the Watsonville canning strike in the mid 1980s. And it was then that I began to learn about the lack of healthcare, decent living wages, and healthy working conditions. 
And then having leaders such as SF Chavez and Jesse Jackson come to Watsonville and learning about them, I think really kind of lit a fire in me to advocate for injustices. And I would say that my experience at Cabrillo as a student worker um, working in the EOPS office, listening to the stories of inequities that my peers were experiencing at the institution were kind of the beginning of me taking on leadership roles and serving my community. Um, and I had great role models um, within the college that helped me kind of begin my steps as a social justice advocate. And that's really the reason I became an educator was really to ensure that regardless of where you were born or your zip code, that you know people had as many options as possible after high school. And so that's kind of been my mission um, to create learning environments and career opportunities that embrace both academic excellence and student well-being, especially for at-promise students, which is in direct alignment with HSI serviness. So I think my personal life experiences have really led me to that consciousness. And so with that, I'm gonna go ahead and pass it over to Alicia. Thank you, Blanca. So I first heard of HSIs in my PhD program surprisingly, right? Although I had attended an HSI, San Jose State was an HSI um, or is an HSI when I was there in my master's. And I I never heard of, of you know, HSI-ness or HSI events or anything like that while I was there at San Jose State. And so hearing about this identity for the first time in my PhD program, I was like automatically intrigued and wanted to know and learn all I could about this institutional identity. And my advisor in my program, Dr. Marcela Cuellar, like her work is also on HSIs. And so I was like, I wanna know everything, all I can about what this means, what this, what is this, what do these types of institutions do or not do, right? That's different from non-HSIs. Um, or an even emerging HSIs, right? And so um, my research then took on HSI work as well. And after learning about servingness, I realized that the idea of servingness, kind of similar to what Blanca was, was talking about, was deeply connected to like the morals and the values that my parents embedded throughout my upbringing, right? The idea of giving back to my family, to community, uplifting others, right, to grow, achieve, and, and succeed um, on our way as well, right? And so, like I had mentioned earlier, also of just even my career interests were based on what I could do to give back to my family and my community, right? And so also similar to Blanca's family, my parents always instilled that idea in, in me and led by example, also often housing, you know, friends and family that had recently immigrated from Michoacan, Mexico, where my parents are from, sharing resources with other people, right? If someone learned about a community program or free food for kids during the summer or anything like that. Like we were all kind of sharing resources. We didn't all have cars. And so we would carpool with other families, right? To, to get to these free programs or resources for, for kids and, and stuff like that, right? So while I later learned in, in life what HSIs were and servingness more broadly, I think outside of academia, servingness was something that I grew up with all of my life outside. And of course, and it later informed my academics and my scholarship too. And I'll pass it on to Serena. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Alicia. Um, you know, 
I, I would say I have similar parallels uh, where it was servingness uh, was a way of life. Um, and and so for me, my servingness journey uh, began as a child being raised in a, in a really biracial and diverse family. Um, our My abuelita raised my sister and cousin and I while our parents worked. Um, and that was, you know, in the Bay Area. Um, and my abuelita, you know, she was four foot 11, but you never mess with her <laughs> ever. And so um, when we were really little, uh, the family kind of split up a bit. Uh, my parents moved, they like accidentally just moved to the mountains, the Santa Cruz mountains above Los Gatos. And the rest of the family uh, moved to East Palo Alto. And so we ended up having this uh, really um, kind of diverse experience as kids where we, during school periods, we would live in, you know, the Los Gatos area. And then during school breaks, we would live in East Palo Alto with like my tia and my cousin and, and my abuelita. And so very early on, I noticed the disparities in access between resources between the two communities. And I didn't understand it back then. I remember asking my cousin, like, why are there so many potholes here? And she's like, oh, well, the city doesn't have money to fix the potholes. I was like, oh, Los Gatos has lots of money. Why don't we just give it to them? <laughs> and I thought it was very reasonable. But, you know, back then I, I knew that it was wrong, but I didn't really know like how to go about um, like addressing that, uh, you know, at, at such a young age. And so one of the big things was uh, access to educational equity. So, you know, when in EPA in East Palo Alto, when students had no high school, no local, local high school, had to be bused really far away to other public schools, oftentimes put into a non-college track, I had access to one of the best free public high schools in the entire country. And so I knew like that just wasn't fair, but I also know like life isn't fair. And so Abuelita was really like kind of a guiding light at, at those things. Like her life was hugely difficult. And the things that she endured, like I, I can't even imagine sometimes. But despite like the circumstances life threw at her, um, no matter like how hard it got, she just continued to focus on her faith and compassion. And for me, um, like even though she had very little resources, she would buy candy for all the little children in her apartment complex. And it was those same kids like who grew up to be teenagers and would carry her groceries up the stairs in East Palo Alto when it was the murder capital of the United States, where people like wouldn't even drive through the city. And so she really taught me that you don't have to accept inequity but you do have to use whatever privilege you do have, whether it's, you know, um, you have to use your privilege and particularly the privilege that my ancestors sacrificed everything for me to have in order to serve. And so she taught me that there was like really good in every person and, and in order to find it, like I needed to find it in myself first. And so through that compassion, through that listening, through that service, um, you know, I've been able to work towards addressing educational equity for my students and in my community. And what's interesting is that, you know, I didn't know the HSI designation until much, much, much later in life. Um, but it was the academic word for 
the practices and the lifestyle and the commitment that we were already given. And, and so I think it's kind of interesting how a lot of us have those kind of parallels uh, of like, well, this is just what we do for our community. And, and now it has, you know, academic language that is associated as an HSN. And so with that, I'll pass it over to Anne. All righty. So I think my serving this journey began in elementary school where I attended a school that was like essentially an HSI. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in um, a farming community in a rural area of Sacramento Valley, and my peers were primarily the children of farm workers. Um, in my kindergarten class, I think I was the only student that's, that spoke English at home. Um, my teachers were almost entirely Latinx. My principal was Latino. Like all of our events were bilingual. You know, the Christmas we sang Christmas songs in both languages. Um, Cinco de Mayo was like the best day of the year. Um, so I think, I think for me that one of the things that shocked me the most about when I went away to college, when I went to UC Santa Cruz, what it was, how different it was. And it was one of the most non-Latinx educational, educational spaces I had ever been in. So it was a, like a shock to go from my K through 12 experience to then go to a four-year university, um, and just not see like my peers, my, that I, that I, where I came from, um, so when I became Cabrillo's Title V director in 2020, like I really only understood HSI like as the federally, you know, designated term based on enrollment. That's how I understood it. And even though I understood all the basics around the grant and um, and what it was supposed to be doing, um, I didn't really understand serving this or any of this, any of this larger um, vision. So when I, once I was in the position, I was just like, all right, I'm going to learn everything that are, there is possible to learn about being the best Title V director ever. And of course, right away, someone was like, well, have you read Gina Garcia's work? And I was like, no. So I had not even heard your name, right? Which is kind of shocking before 2020. Um, and unheard of, unheard of. <laughs> right? Who, who was I? Uh, so anyway, got, got your book. Um, and it, your first book, that was the first one that I read. Um, and it completely like just blew my mind um, because I felt like I was handed a primer for what to work for, how to identify areas of strength for our college, what to strive toward. Um, and it was really exciting because it was like, oh, here's a whole, there's, this isn't just a designation. There is this whole um, vision that we should be working for. And there's all this scholarship. There's all these different people that are working on this. Of course, you're like La Reina, but there are many other people, um, you know, doing this work and that there's so much in that. Yeah, there you go. I like the crown. Uh, there's so much to read and to do. And there's a whole movement happening. And it felt like what an amazing time to kind of step into the role as a Title V director and, um, and help bring all of this to Cabrillo. And that's something that I've really started doing in 2020 was bringing, um, trying to bring all this work because it's like, hey, we have a movement here that we can be part of. Um, and I, uh, you know, and I was uh, also thinking about, it makes me think of that Las Cafeteras song, A Long Time Coming. Do you know, does anybody know that one? It's a really good song. You should just Google it, YouTube it, listen to it right now. Um, because this is groundbreaking work that has been going on all along, but like now it's, I just feel like there, there's a lot of power happening. Um, so that's my little serving this journey and I'm going to pass it to Matt. And now, thanks, Anna. Now I've got the song going through my head, long time coming. And, it, and it's kind of like, I that kind of describes my uh, coming to serving this. It, it took a long time, right? And so it didn't come until later in my career 
after I had been teaching and I got into, um, I actually got into the job of Dean of Planning and Research. And so my entry into it was very similar to a couple of other themes that have been mentioned. It was like, we were just getting to the threshold of 25% enrollment and when are we gonna get there and when can we apply for an HSI grant? So I got involved at, uh, when I was at San Joaquin Delta, I got involved in writing the first HSI grant that we applied for at that college. And I I was lucky, We I was working with a couple of uh, Latina leaders that were in the college and working on a grant that would improve STEM education there. And we we like just pounded it out one week uh, after about a month of planning and it got funded and it was amazing. And um, we got $3 million to help improve the school and, and especially Hispanic outcomes for students in STEM. And it was a lot of fun. And then, and it was like, it, it triggered for me thinking about how I had taught and not really given much thought to equity gaps in my classes. And there I was sitting on all this data as the Dean of Research and Planning. And so for me, it also sparked that first grant, the, the interest in a lot of peer support funding and, and trying to get money in the hands of students as student workers who could help do like supplemental instruction and tutoring and be peer mentors for their colleagues as they were going through the college. So I'm a big fan of those kinds of programs. Uh, and um, and then it wasn't until recently, I'm going to fess up too, that I didn't read Gina's books. And so Gina, it's like, we're all going to be like mea culpa. We finally got to your book and your book. So thanks for all your work. And and it feels like now I'm I'm like digging more into the literature and learning more because I'm around these folks and, and the work that they do too. So that's my journey into serving this. Thank you all so much. I love it. Y'all know I'm over here with the threads. I mean, the idea that everybody serviness is sort of innate within us and like passed on to us from like our, our, our elders, our ancestors, right? Like that's so beautiful. But then like Matt and Ann, you bring in like a really important piece, which is the grants also are serving us, right? Like it's, it is, it's, it's all of it. Like we can't just say it is just the grants or it is just the innate, like there is a lot going to it, but also what y'all doing, which is intentionality. Right. So like, that's what we're going to talk about next. That's what, that's what I'm excited. So everybody get your pens. If you're listening right now, get your pens ready. Um, Cause we, we're going to start to offer um, some of that intentionality, right? The, the, the ways that y'all are doing that is really important too. Right. Cause so, so there is multiple dimensions um, to serving this, but I love that we, we start with like, Hey, my family taught me, you know, serving this. Um, cause it is, it is, it is. A lot of us are drawn to this work cause, cause it is. It's, an, it's innate and it's kind of within um, who we are. So, so thank you all for sharing those stories um, as well. So Cabrillo College is a community college located in the central coast of California, for those listening that don't know. Um, and Cabrillo's doing some great HSI work. So let's start with that. Blanca, if you could tell us about the HSI work that's been going on at Cabrillo, including when you became an HSI and how many HSI grants you've been awarded. Yes, I'd like to share, but I think I'm going to take us back in time about 30 years ago when I was a student at Cabrillo because I believe that HSI work was happening back then without the designation. Faculty and staff were looking out for those of us who were first generation um, and came from you know, marginalized communities. I was an EOPS student and a student worker in the EOPS office, as I mentioned earlier, as a peer advisor. 
And in this role, I heard successes and challenges of many re-entry students. And one of the challenges I kept hearing about was that um, from our evening students, um, they had difficult time accessing financial aid because there were no evening hours and there was no bilingual staff. And I shared this uh, with my mentor and EOPS counselor, David Trevino, who told me that I should voice my concerns as a student leader on campus with the financial aid director. So he was kind of teaching me the ropes, like chain of command and, you know, talk to the board of trustees. And um, when really we got no response, I was then introduced to the Chicano Hispanic Affairs Council, CHOC back then, which has now changed its name. Um, and it was a team of faculty and staff and they were just advocating for um, Chicano Hispanic students on campus. So I began to attend their meetings as a student representative, and I met many wonderful role models, such as Rachel Mayo, Consola España, Vera Romandia, Eva Costa, and many more, many more leaders, uh, faculty and staff on campus. And really as a result of their guidance, I, along with other student leaders from various clubs on campus, led a walkout to advocate for evening hours and bilingual staff in the financial aid office. So as a result of that, um, evening hours became available two days a week and a bilingual staff person was hired. And so I will add that as a result of our club advisors, uh, we also started the first Chicano Latino graduation in 1993, uh, which is now the Nuestra Recognition Ceremony. So while Cabrillo didn't earn its HSI designation until 2006, it has really been a grassroots effort for decades. Um, the first Title V grant uh, was awarded in 2010, um, and we received three Title III grants and four Title V grants over the past 13 years, roughly totaling $25 million. So these grants have been critical and specifically designating funding to design and create programs to serve our Latinx students. So now students like me 30 years ago don't need to advocate for all these, like we are now in the space to provide these services um, because we're being intentional about it. So now um, with over a decade of impact through grant funded projects, Cabrillo has essentially eliminated the equity gap in graduation rates for Latinx students. Title V and Title III grants were instrumental in this work because they brought designated intentional funding to the college. So as a college, we're at the point now where we are thinking strategically about these grants and how we can leverage them to continue to transform the institution. So I think that there's a lot to be said about the work and efforts that have been, you know, was done for decades prior to this. And now how wonderful it is to have these grants to be more intentional about the work. Yes, thank you for saying that the intentionality of becoming an HSI. I get um, upset whenever people are like, you accidentally become an HSI. And I'm like, that's not true. Typically, students have been advocating for different things that that push us that direction, right? The advocacy is actually essential. It's an essential piece to that, right? Um, so already we already mapped on a couple pieces of servingness. That's another piece, right? That um, that it has to be acknowledged. So so thank you for bringing that into the space of like most of this is not accidental, 
And a lot of times it is um, uh, Chicanx, Latinx faculty and staff and students um, who are really pushing, right, and, and, and leading the way. So, but also congrats on y'all's um, success in getting HSI grants. I'll go ahead and plug. Uh, Alicia and I are working on a, on a report about the California Community College's uh, HSIs, and um, y'all are an anomaly. Right, like not all the California community colleges are are being as successful, right? Um, with getting the Title Five and Title Three grants, so congrats. That's that's worth um, celebrating for sure. And y'all are y'all are really doing good work. Um, and I think with our report that's going to come out probably about the same time as this episode, um, is really advocating that all the campuses should be accessing those dollars, right? Like let's let's help all the campuses, um, because the, those dollars do help you to uh, implement uh, different things on campus that you might not have otherwise been able to do, right? Um, so yeah, so I just want to say, yeah, big big ups on, on your success in that area. So one of the things that y'all have, have done as part of your HSI work is, is uh, you've launched an HSI task force. And if we could go ahead and get into some of that, I get asked often, like, how, what is, what do you need, what do you need to become an, to start an HSI task force? And what are the, the keys to success, to successfully launching an HSI task force? So let's learn a little bit um, about the task force. And if you want to talk to us about that. Yeah, thanks. So the idea to create an HSI task force really came um, after having you, Gina, come and facilitate a series of workshops at Cabrillo. In fall of 2020, you were our equity day keynote speaker and you were booked like even before the pandemic, like that was supposed to be in person and all that. And then it, it changed to being online. Um, so you are equity day keynote speaker. And then I, um, I actually brought you back for a series of workshops in January and February of 2021. And those we had one, they were all on Zoom part of our flex stuff. We had one for faculty that was about um, social justice curriculum. Another one that was like for everybody transforming the institution. It was um, the, the talk you were giving at the time um, while you're writing your latest book. So all of that framework. And then also one for um, administrators about like leading for change, leading um, how you lead the change around HSIs. Um, so those workshops like really fired people up. Uh, about doing the work. And then essentially out of that, there was a call from a lot of people across the campus um, to create an HSI task force because it's one of your recommendations. It's and it's in your first, it's in your first book as well. Um, so through that, right, this call that people were saying, like, hey, we need to make changes, but we need to have, we need to have a task force to do that. We didn't really want that to just be happening across the campus in without bringing people together at a table and really being intentional about the conversations and the design. Um, so a partnership was initiated between a shared governance committee that's called CPC, College Planning Committee. I think that's the acronym. Anyway, Matt can nod, yes. And the Chicano Latino Affairs Council, which was that same group that Blanca mentioned earlier. Um, so the idea was to co-create and co-lead an HSI uh, task force together. So I think one of the reasons we have had um, such success with our task force has been from this partnership. Uh, the Chicano Latino Affairs Council um, really has been the advocacy group on campus that has essentially been doing HSI work for decades, as Blanca mentioned, um, and that uh, together with this pro uh, partnership to create an HSI task force ensured that it was both a grassroots effort coupled with formal shared governance structures. A broad call went out to the entire college to invite and welcome anyone to participate and over 50 people 
across the campus volunteer to meet twice a month on Friday mornings during the pandemic. Right. And we know how crazy of a time that was. Right. And people were like, yes, I'm going to volunteer. This is extra. There was no incentive. There was no additional compensation. It was just people volunteering um, to do the work. And there was tremendous uh, heart involved with this with this process. People participated because they really believed in the importance of the work. Um, and the task force grounded their work in uh, Gina and your transforming HSI's framework. Like I said, at the time you hadn't published your book yet. So we we literally used the Zoom recordings and we would like pause and like look at your slides and take notes. Um, and that's actually how we developed the subgroups because our task force had six subgroups that were loosely based, like our interpretation of your framework and how it kind of fit for Cabrillo and for us. Um, and the vision was for each subgroup to like conduct research and discuss both what we were doing well, what were our current strengths, and then make short-term, mid-term, and long-term recommendations to enact servingness, sort of as, as you had put forth. Um, so that was sort of the structure, how it got all designed. Um, and that group, you know, that all happened over the course of a year. Um, and, and the one thing that I wanted to say before I pass it off to Matt is that I think one of the things that was really important in the design of the task force is that, again, it was co-led between the Chicano Latino Affairs Council and our president, right? So it just demonstrated the importance of this work that it was not only a priority for the grassroots folks, but also um, from top leadership. Um, and with that, I'm going to pass the mic to Matt to talk about it as well. Thanks, Anne. And, um, you know, that's a good launching point, because I think one of the things, one of the secret sauce items of, of why this worked so well at Cabrillo is that there was grassroots leadership, but also buy-in from the top. Uh, and I think also in doing the work and getting to the point of, of making recommendations and having the presentations that we did at the end of spring 22, where all these focus groups got to put their, their ideas out there in front of everybody else. I think we all kind of came to the conclusion we did not want the, the conclusions like the report to just sit on the shelf and just be another report that's out there that we've done and, and nobody goes and looks at again. So it was, it was important, I think, to all of us that we wanted to make sure that there were really gonna be actions flowing out of it. And so coming out of the task force, we created the leadership team in starting in fall of 22 to make sure we were doing check-ins and monitoring on some of those short-term goals and more medium-term goals as well. I think a, a couple of other things I would highlight uh, about why it worked, at least from my perspective, is like the symbolic importance of sending invitation letters for people to serve on on the HSI leadership team and, and like me inviting people to participate in the work. I think it's really important to do that. And then within the, his, the leadership team from the last year, like uh, the importance of food, like our first meeting we held at a, a local restaurant and you know my willingness to go buy the food and then bring it to the table and then setting the stage for the kind of agreements that we had and being very democratic in how we structure our meetings and our work and what we do and that recognition that leadership's from with all, within all parts of the college and not just you know, from like positional title. Um, I also think like I benefited from having a board. Our elected board is very supportive of this work. So when you get buy-in from the top and then there's willingness for the board to say, well, how are we putting resources behind this? 
uh, and budgeting um, some dollars behind it and reallocating resources is really important. And so that was good to have their buy-in from the start. And so just thinking about money, I mean, making commitments with money is, is like demonstrating your values as an institution. And so when we got the ideas from the HSI report, I wanted to make sure that in the first year we were allocating some money to do some things um, that were in the report as short-term goals. Uh, and so like hiring the, um, the Spanish language marketing professional was one of those things that we just did right out of the gate. We got to do this and get better at advertising and marketing to our community. So um, I think it's been key. I mean, it's sort of this blend of grassroots and CEO uh, and board leadership and leadership through without the within the institution throughout it uh, to support the work. So, um, so maybe uh, you know the task force is kind of new. Maybe we should talk a little bit about that, Gina. Yeah, sure. But first, I want to real quick summarize what you said and make sure listeners got that. So, president support, board support grassroots commitment to those folks, money, putting your money where your mouth is, buying people food, you know, just being, <laughs> giving people food. Um, but also the symbol symbolism of it being invited. Um, I, I actually think I agree with that. Um, I get called in often when I'm out on these HSI streets and I often poke at STEM and I'm like, STEM never come to the HSI conversations. Why not? And somebody like called me out and basically was like, you know what, on my campus, we are not invited to those conversations. And I was like, boom. All right. You just put me in my place. But like, sometimes we just need to invite people, right? Like rather than being wild, like, why don't you come? Well, maybe just if we actually sent an invitation, right? So so I love that you said that because I agree, right? Um, that sometimes we just want to be invited to the party, right? And in this case, the HSI party. <laughs> like I want an invitation. I don't want to just necessarily show up because I don't know who's at the party yet. Um, but if you invite me, then I'll know that I'm actually invited invited to it. So, so yeah, but Anne wants to jump in. Go ahead, Anne. I was going to say that when we did the HSI task force from the inception, Matt, remember all those people volunteered and there was like 50 people and Matt wrote a letter to every person on a, you know, and invited them individually. So it was, it showed the honor and the value from the beginning. So I just like all this, that's, it seems like a small thing, but it's actually a really big deal. It's also, you know, mm -hmm. Gina, I'm also thinking like, when we published the report, which is something I think Serena is going to talk a little bit about, but acknowledging people that they put in the work too and celebrating their work is important as well on, on that end. Maybe Serena, can you talk about some of the stuff we did during the last year in terms of accomplishments? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I, I think as a group, we're pretty honored with, uh, with how we've been set up for success so far. So, you know, probably a significant accomplishment that we've talked about before is really the establishment of the HSI leadership group that came out of the task force work. And really just, it allows for us to address institutional challenges faced by our community by really listening to the task force recommendations. 
that allows us to implement both short-term and long-term funding for these initiatives, as Matt has uh, discussed. And so, you know, just to highlight again that these accomplishments happen through the intersection of grassroots organizing and presidential support, and where the two merge has really been a place of action and equity for us. Um, so, you know, uh, like Matt had mentioned with that funding set aside, we now have funding for a full-time bilingual marketing coordinator, which has been a huge need that people have been uh, vocalizing for a while, huge. The funding that is specifically set aside for HSI-specific conferences, for the support of our Hispanic and Latinx events such as Nuestra Recognition and the publication of Journal X, which is a journal that aims to give voice to social justice issue. These things, these people, these places, these grassroots productions were scrambling for money, begging every year, hey, who can pitch in a little bit here, a little bit now? They're, now they get to focus on the work that they are passionate about because this funding has been set aside. So that's a huge, huge, huge accomplishment. Um, we've also been able to empower and amplify the grassroots voices through the establishment of the task force and the leadership team. Um, and through that, we've been able to make our work highly visible. And it's a diverse task force, something that we're really proud of. There are, you know, there's administrators, there's classified, there's confidential, there's faculty, and we'll talk more about who we want to include in, in some of our areas um, of improvement coming forward next. But we um, are able to make this work highly visible by leveraging and braiding um, all of these plans and goals and visions like our student equity achievement plans, our HSI grant, and our institutional effectiveness planning. So for instance, the task force recommendation was to revise our college mission to reflect our HSI designation. And last year, the college planning committee, committee um, approved that. And currently there is a committee set aside that is working on revising our mission statement. Um, we had mentioned before that we were able to use the funding to formalize the HSI task force into a report, into a publication, and it was sent to every single household in the county. There was also a town hall meeting about it where we can engage. And so really making the recommendations of the task force, like we talked about, not just sitting on a shelf, but our guide um, for our internal college vision, but also to serve as an outward facing message to our community, highlighting our focus on our HSI des designation. Um, you know, we are also very proud of the fact that we are building a cohesive team through our HSI town halls and summits. Um, we are a small but mighty group, but we can't, we will never be able to do this work alone. We have to invite everyone to be a part of it. So we've been doing that through town halls, through summit, and enables us to move from recommendation to actionable steps. And the forums allows the entire college community to collaborate in defining what it means to be an HSI. And how are we demonstrate serving this? And everybody needs uh, opportunities to find that within themselves before we can find it as an institution. So we provide these multiple opportunities for engagement at various levels. Um, another thing that we're pretty proud of is our non-hierarchical system of facilitation, which promotes leadership uh, within all levels. So it's just another key feature of our approach. Each team member has an opportunity to lead sessions, and it creates a model that allows us to persist despite some, you know, systemic barriers. 
Um, and I just wanted to highlight once again, the crucial support of our board for the president's role in this work serves as a significant asset. So the board's expectation and backing of the president's support in this work has been instrumental in gaining traction and momentum, playing a, a vital role in our overall success. That was a mouthful. <laughs> you gave us a lot to, to, to think about. Now I'm over here sitting like, wow, y'all like mapped on to the framework, right? It's like it's like you had the the notes before the book came out or something, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story because you tell me it all the time, right? That like you used to watch the videos, right? Because I, I did present to Gabriel the the transforming HSI framework two years, three years before it actually was published, right? Uh, so it's been in my head, obviously a long time I've been sharing it, but but y'all do are doing so many of the dimensions in real time. It's one thing to write about it in a book and pretend and to freedom dream, right? Which is what I call it, right? But y'all actually are doing it, right? In each of these different dimensions. And it's just, it's just amazing, which is why I wanted to have y'all here, right? So people could hear that this can happen and leveraging, you know, funding from HSI grants, leveraging um, some of the, the, you know, mandates and policies that are coming down from the community college system in general, right? The California community college system, like y'all are, are, are able to see strategically how each of those dimensions becomes a part of serving this, right? Um, so, so thank you for that. Now, the flip side is, of course, it all sounds beautiful. I mean, we could write it all down in a book and we could be like, oh, it's, it's all it's all perfect. But there are challenges, right? There are challenges to this work. So talk to me um, about the challenges. Serena, you gonna you going to tell us about the challenges too? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I really love about challenges is uh, each one is an opportunity. And so when we kind of think about those opportunities or ongoing challenges that uh, Cabrillo's HSI task force and leadership um, team has faced consistently probably comes down to just a lack of capacity. Uh, folks are already in full-time roles, so capacity for additional workload is, is, is just reduced as we kind of always the perpetual balance between, you know, our, our life and our work and, and how those two merge. Um, however, you know, those competing priorities are, will forever be a consistent challenge. Um, but we are committed to prioritizing this work and we really lean in on each other through our shared governance model, which um, has been really helpful. Um, an additional kind of ongoing challenge is just, you know, the systems that we live in, <laughs> the institutional systems and policies that continue to allow microaggressions against our historically marginalized populations. And while this challenge will continue to exist in any system of higher ed that is inherently racist, our work is to reflect upon, deconstruct, and rebuild those systems and policies that increase belonging and servingness for our community, for our most marginalized populations, thereby reducing the microaggressions and, and educational oppression. Um, so another challenge that we're facing, other challenges are more short, short term. Those ones I would say are just persistent challenges that we all face in, in any uh, realm of equity work. But some of our kind of shorter term challenges um, is that we haven't formalized our feedback loop within the larger college community or community as a whole. Uh, so that's going to take some time. It's going to take some trial and error, but really making sure that we have a system for the for a continuous improvement process is going to be really important to prioritize moving forward. Uh, the other piece um, is we have not yet 
included our students into our HSI leadership team, which is a definite barrier for us at the moment. Um, it was something that, you know, we get so excited about the work. And then when we have opportunities to reflect, like over the summer, we're like, oh, wait, we still need to be more intentional, intentional about the voices that are coming, the seats at the table. Um, and so that is, uh, you know, it really mirrors what we've seen throughout Cabrillo and other, you know, educational systems throughout the pandemic but really need to consider how do we navigate this moving forward because student voice is essential and central to our work. And finally, we're just trying to explore how to continuously bring this work to the forefront within current structures. And you know, maybe it's one of those things where you, you have to create the structure, but you know, an example is that there really isn't a, currently a structured space to have these ongoing conversations continue outside of the task force or outside of the leadership group. So we've, you know, we've done the town halls. We were going to be presenting a summit during HSI week. We have HSI week where we're doing Voces de la Comunidad with different foci on each of the days, which is really exciting. But we don't want to have this like one and done approach. We want it to be a part of what we do every day at multiple levels. So you know, there there currently isn't a structure for those ongoing like kind of professional learning communities that we see in K-12, where you have real time to look at your student data in real time and then use that to inform and drive instruction or policies or systems or student support. Um, and just those kind of ongoing meetings for regular ongoing professional development, because, you know, time for reflection and engagement with colleagues. Um, those are really important in being able to form that identity around our HSI and serving this. Uh, so that that is definitely a barrier that will need to be addressed moving forward. But we feel that we've got a lot of great momentum going, a lot of good support. And, you know, as long as we are able to lean into our cultural and social capital, like we definitely will persist. Those are all challenges that yeah many campuses are facing right they're they're absolutely valid and like you said so I like that you mapped them out like some are systemic right we're dealing you know racism systems of oppression we're going to have to continue to deal with that but then there are some we can we can address as well um something you you talked about though like as far as like the work outside of the task force um I'd like to hear a little bit about that and Alicia I think you're going to come in and talk to us a little bit about that about other ways y'all are implementing service serving this even beyond the task force right because you are right um and I know this episode is to focus on the task force but tell us a little bit about about that other things that are going on yeah so I was hired almost a year ago now in August it'll be my first year as the first ethnic studies faculty on campus and so I know so exciting <laughs> so uh and from what I've heard right it it took a lot it took a lot of of efforts from many people units and um on campus right that were really really invested in bringing ethnic studies to the campus, right? So there have been classes that have been offered for um, years now, right, on um, in, in ethnic studies, but there was a lot of intention and efforts, right, into actually creating a department, right, and bringing this, an ethnic studies department on campus, which is what I've been working on this, this last year, right, like um, developing curriculum and, and all of the things that need to, to happen so we can officially be um, an, a department soon. And so in my opinion, this is an important step, right, that the college took and many people took to demonstrate 
servingness in, in practice. And other ways in which I have been seeing servingness implemented in practice is through the involvement of faculty, staff, and administrators. And I say that, or I highlight um, that because students are centered in our HSI services, programming, all of the things HSI that we do on campus. Um, but I think it's really important that there has been also a lot of, of intentionality behind bringing in faculty, staff, and administrators also into the HSI work. And so, um, for example, we've seen this through like professional development events. So like I hosted um, an event during our flexed week last year, last spring. When was our last one, fall? <laughs> I don't even remember. Um, so I hosted an event during our last flex week where we discussed issues of servingness and ways in which we could implement the idea of of serving through our everyday lives, right? Not just saving HSI work for the HSI team, but how does each person or how can each of us implement servingness in the classroom, right? Because there was it was in great attendance and there was faculty, staff, administrators present. So talking about those things, right? How does HSI-ness, how does servingness look in each of our roles in each of the departments that we serve on campus. And, and I think it was a really great event. There was a lot of excitement around the, the conversations that we were having and just investment from folks, right, who were there and present in the, in the uh, room. So something else that we've been talking about within the leadership team is just continuing to host events, right, for students, for the community broadly outside of just HSI week, right? HSI week, I think is an amazing week on campus for us where there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of events. This next HSI week is gonna be, I think just amazing. We have so many things going on and it's gonna be super fun, but continuing to do that throughout the year, right? Because obviously servingness is not just a week long commitment, right? It should be an ongoing continuous process, which I do think that we are very committed to. So just kind of continuing to host these types of events, bring awareness to issues going on and, and stuff like that throughout the year. And then lastly, um, our name change, which is really exciting. Cabrillo is undergoing an, an, a name change right now and we will have a new name hopefully by August, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the name Cabrillo is directly connected to um, genocide and horrendous just violence against indigenous communities and communities of color, right? And so the fact that we are being proactive in changing the name to serve indigenous communities and communities of color is amazing. And our president is actually um, going to talk a little bit more about this in a bit. He has a little bit more of the background, right, on, on all of that. So I'll save it for, for you. Thank you for that. That just gave us so much Oh, just beauty, right? Like there's so much beauty going on um, on campus. So bringing in students and community and ethnic studies, right? And your name change. I'm glad y'all brought it up because I was wondering if you're going to, because I, I know that y'all have been, um, you know, talk, talking about the name change for, for quite some time. So thank you for, for naming that. So one thing I would like Matt to talk to us about from your president lens that I think about a lot and I'd love to hear your thoughts on is how do you envision HSI efforts working in tandem with some of the, the, initiatives launched within the California Community College system and or the mandates, right? Because y'all are, the California Community College system is is very focused on equity, we know. So how do you envision um, them working together? Yeah, no, it's, um, I think that there's some action in the state system to really advance students, um, particularly Hispanic students and African-American students. So I'll talk about a couple of themes like 
our funding formula that got changed five years ago, embedded within it, uh, you know, we're funded now 70% based on enrollments, but 30% of our funding now in the funding formula is tied to how well we do serving underrepresented students, um, traditionally underrepresented, poor students particularly. And then 10% is funded based on completion metrics that are associated with um, our colleges and particularly some bonus points for completion for um, core students, Pell recipients, and um, students who, um, who've been you know, traditionally marginalized. And so one of the things that, that, that happens is, is there's this intersection of work that we do on Hispanic serving initiative um, ideas and actions that are embedded in, in our work that help also address these past equity gaps that have been there through you know, systems of oppression that like Serena was talking about earlier. So to the extent that we do good work in promoting HSI completion or Hispanic completion or African-American completion through some of the systemic work and the action plans we're doing within that report, we're also at the same time helping close equity gaps that the state is looking for us to do, and we're improving the bottom line for the college. So, and I think the most important point of this work is that closing the equity gaps means we're getting students into wage sustaining, family sustaining jobs, uh, out into transfer, four year degrees, and so on. And then I think the other thing to mention is that the work that's being done in California in changing math and English placement is also, I think, important HSI work. Because for too long, our systems of placement into math and English were really discriminatory because they, they tracked students based on um, high school grades and, and what have you. And we'd, we'd, despite their high school course taking pattern, we'd have them come take a placement test and then track them into remedial education. And overwhelmingly, those were African-American students and Hispanic students, right? And so the legislative change that, that flipped that to say every student coming to a California community college should have the opportunity to enroll in college-level math, college-level English, and have a probability of success in that class. That's the biggest equity work change at a policy level in my career in higher ed. Uh, and I think you're seeing that play out across the national uh, framework. Um, and I, you know, I just think that's it's so vital. And it ties in with if we can do that at a state level and they have all of this grassroots work to help support students and, and provide community to them on campus, they all intersect for having um, reductions of gaps. You know, the other thing I think I just wanted to quickly address, maybe quickly the name change, Gina, because I think that's mm -hmm. so important politically mm -hmm. and symbolically. But I also think it's it's also an area where there's pushback, even within a liberal community like Santa Cruz and this area, which likes to think of itself as very progressive. There are so many people who write to me and and call me and say, why are you changing the name? That makes no sense. You should be focusing on other things and raising money for that, for scholarships and other stuff. And there's this, this real town gown divide that I think is happening where the, I think internally Cabrillo folks are really committed to making the change more so than the community. I also th think that there's a lot of white privilege that needs to get unpacked about that opposition 
where people are just used to having power and being able to say that the, the name's fine. Why are you concerned about it? Right. And not willing to spend the time to listen to people about why the name should be changed, you know, in the way that um, Alicia was describing. So, um, you know, I think that's an interesting thing that I think people in my position and boards, elected boards, will sometimes have that pushback at that level. And it's the question of whether we can lean into that work and change that way of thinking out there in the community. Yes, thank you for bringing in and because, yeah, I know Alicia did mention you were going to talk a little bit more, more about the name change. So thank you for talking about that. Um, and it brings in so many dimensions of this work. And y'all keep bringing up community, right? And I want to make sure I acknowledge that. Because um, we could have done a whole session on just talking about how y'all have been engaging with the community. Not just currently, but historically. I know the work. I've read your report. I've spent time with y'all, right? Like, I know that this has been long-term work. Um, and so... So yeah, I think it is important, right? Even when it comes to something like a name change or mission, right? Like y'all talk about the, you're, you're working on your mission, even that, right? People push back on that. Like what is our, our mission and how is it gonna engage HSI? And what does that mean if we do? And does that mean we don't serve other people? And so many questions just evoked for people, right? Within in those sort of things. So uh, thank you for bringing that in and, and wrapping that back up. As a quick addendum, since recording this episode, I wanted to add two things. First, the report that I mentioned that Alicia and I were working on has been published, the report about the Hispanic serving community colleges in California. So we will add that to the show notes. Also, there was conversation about the name change. Both, both Alicia and Matt mentioned the name change, Cabrillo College's um, name change. Since recording this episode, there has been a halt on that project, mostly because of some of the things that Matt mentioned, which was that there has been some pushback. There's been a lot of conversation around the name change and there's process. So they're continuing the process. Cabrillo College is still continuing with the name change, but we'll uh, continue to talk about it and continue to engage partners in the conversation. We also want to acknowledge that justice work and serviness work are not without struggle. And that struggle is what creates change. And this is just one of those examples of process and struggle within this work. So we're at time. I could ask y'all questions all day long, but you know, we gotta we gotta wrap up this this episode. So final question that you all gotta answer. You can't get out of the pod until you answer this question. Que pasa? HSIs. Blanca, you wanna start us off? Yes, like for me, it's about a sense of belonging and creating a cultura where our students feel welcome, seen, heard, and valued. And at the same time, we're supporting them and helping them build a strong sense of self. And I'll pass it on to Serena. For me, it's about getting uh, to yourself, to others, to our students, to our community, really just allowing the space for reflection around how to accept and give compassion especially to those whose values might be different than ours. And a big, uh, te quiero mucho, mama, daddy. <laughs> Thank you for your sacrifice. And Yeah, for me, the HSIs are just where it's at. I love working in community college. I think community colleges are one of the most amazing institutions like in the world. And to be at an HSI on top of that, this work is phenomenal. Our students are so amazing. It's an 
they're so motivating to do this work. And then I get to do it with the most amazing colleagues. So I like, this is, I love this work. Uh, Alicia. Yeah, so I will say reflection, acceptance and empowerment. I think we must as HSIs, right, continue to reflect on our institutional practices, accept where we are at, whether we're serving or whether we're far from it in the different areas on, on our college campus, and empower ourselves and one another to make the necessary changes to reach our full potential. And Matt. Well, you know, I'm, I'm reflecting back on what Blanca said, and I, I, I for me, it's um, about a sense of belonging for students and making sure that they feel like this is the place they should be at. Uh, and that if we can create that sense of place and, and make it inviting and welcoming and, and celebrate our community and the culture and the life of the place, that that's what it's all about. And so it's, it's I guess I would say belonging and gratitude and celebration. And that's what's up, HSIs. Thanks for tuning in today, y'all.